Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that I have always loved, but I have never preached. So bear with me. Some people think, oh, we'll we'll get done soon then. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, Some people think, oh no, he's never preached it before. It doesn't matter. We're going to have a good time. But the reason I love this passage of scripture is because it is literally one of the most outrageous passages of scripture in this, in all of the text. Uh, if you look at it from human value, uh, and I look forward to, to doing that in just a few minutes. But before we do, I just want to ask you, have you ever been wrong? I'm so thankful that my, my daughter was one of the first ones to answer yes. That's just reassuring for me. Uh, what about the rest of you? Have you ever done anything wrong? I heard one person say no. I would love to meet with you after church for about 30 seconds and explain to you the error in your answer. I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. But it's, it's just good. It's good. It was, we've all been wrong before and in and, and various degrees. How many of you have been wrong today? Now, hold on. Before you answer, wives, you're not answering for your spouses, Okay. Answer for yourself. How many of you have been wrong today already? Like seven of you. Okay, very good. A lot of, there's a lot of day left, I guess. Some of y'all looking ahead. That's, that's, that's not a healthy outlook, but, but it's going to happen. I invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. We're going to be in and around that area today, so I'm just going to invite you to turn there and, and hang out there for a little bit. Uh, just like last week, if you were here last week or if you weren't here last week, let me just preface by saying that uh, this morning we're going to be bouncing around a lot in Scripture here in a little bit uh, because Scripture validates Scripture. It points to itself. So we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages of Scripture today, but we're going to camp out in Numbers 22. So when we start calling out other passages of Scripture, that doesn't mean everybody turned there because it's only for like one verse. So if you want to jot it down, that's fine. If you want to holler at me afterwards or email me or something, I'll get you all the scripture that we use today. But I'm just letting you know, you can just hang out in Numbers 22 because everything else that I read, I promise, is coming from God's word. I'm not just making it up, okay? Uh, But we're going to be in Numbers 22 today. And I want to introduce you to two characters that you you need to, we're going to be talking about throughout today. And I don't want you to get them confused because their names are Balak or Balak and Balaam. Or Balaam, I don't really know. But Balak and Balaam. And you can see how that'd be pretty easy to get them confused if we're talking about it. So I'm going to let you know the difference between the two. But I want us to talk a little bit about Balaam. Because he's the guy we're going to be spending most of our time with today. Balaam. Let me tell you about Balaam before we dive into this text. Balaam was, uh, he wasn't really an awesome guy. If I can just kind of sum it up for you. Balaam was basically, in this day and age, he was basically a spiritist. He was a psychic. He was a soothsayer. This guy made his living off of people paying him to tell them things from the spirits or the gods or past family members that had passed away. That, that was his job. Um, he was paid for divination in the sense that he claimed to speak for the spirits and for the gods. Uh, so just want you to know what his profession is. This is Balaam. Uh, so that's what he was the equivalent of at a modern day spiritist. Um, we know that he knew of the Lord God. And you're going to see evidence of that in a little bit. He knew of the Lord God. He actually, uh, God would speak to him. Uh, and he would speak to God. Because anybody can speak to God for the record. 
Uh, but we knew he heard from God. He believed God, but he didn't believe in God. And that's a huge difference between believing God and believing in God. As a matter of fact, our world today is populated heavily with people who believe God, but they don't believe in God. So, this is Balaam's problem. This is his, one of his main problems. He also believed and knew about the Israelites. Because where we're going to pick up reading that is taking place that the Israelites are moving around, the Hebrew children of God are moving around, and he knew who they were, but he didn't care. He didn't care because he was a Gentile. He wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't a Hebrew. So in his mind, it was like, you know, God's covenant and God's promises, or at least their God's covenant and promises, don't apply to me because I'm not an Israelite. But yet we know that God still spoke from him. He was from the area in the region of the Euphrates, which was kind of in the same region that Abraham came from, which maybe some of the scholars believe that that might be his connection to God is growing up in that region and hear about this patriarch of Abraham from countless of years ago from the same area and how God spoke to Abraham and, and called him out. Maybe that's where it started. We don't know. We don't know where his connection with God started. We just know that God did speak to him and spoke through him. But we don't know why, because this guy was not a good dude. So I wanted you to know a little bit about Balaam. Now, Balak, or Balak, however you want to pronounce it, Balak was the king of Moab. All right, so here's a little review. Balaam, Balak. Ready? Pop test? Ready? Who was the spiritist? Balaam. Who was the king of Moab? Balak. Who was the modern day, the old day psychic? All right. Who was the soothsayer? Ah, yeah. You guys are getting, see this title, man, this title, you guys are wake up over here. They passed. Y'all are struggling. We're going to pray about it, but it's all good. So I want to set the scene for you before we dive into the text. All right. So here's what's happening. The Israelites are on their way to the promised land. Moses is still leading them at this point in time. Um, we've seen them overcome some pretty big obstacles. We've seen um, the serpent that was raised up a few chapters earlier. And we see them come into the region of Moab. The Israelites are coming through. But here's the trend. If you've studied God's word, you know this. If not, then let me just tell you about it. The trend is as they're moving towards the promised land, God is faithful to keep his covenant and his promise with them. Because he's kind of like that. He's pretty good at keeping his promises. So as they're coming up against new regions and coming against new armies and new nations, those nations, those armies are falling before the Israel people in defeat. Why? Because God is who he says he is. Got it? So it's kind of, they start, the Israelites have this reputation that as they're coming through, the other nations are hearing like, dude, every time the Israelites come through, People are falling, civilizations are crumbling, armies are getting defeated and conquered. It's happening like crazy. King Balak was no stranger to these rumors. Because what happened is the Israelites are coming in. They have now come into the region of Moab. And who is the king of Moab? Balak. Very good. Y'all caught up. Good job. Balak is the king of Moab. And he's sitting there thinking, oh, this ain't good. Because here's these people that no army has been able to defeat. And they're now knocking on our door. We might be next. So Balak started thinking, you know, it's not exactly the fact that these people are really good military strategists. I keep hearing they're winning these battles because of who their God is. So there must be something. So so Balak 
started thinking a little bit proactively and said, you know what? I've got a plan. So he decided to enter into a little bit of spiritual warfare himself. He said, I'm going to send a group of, of, of honored people into my court to this guy named Balaam. Because I heard this guy named Balaam, he communicates with the gods and he communicates with the spirits. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring him in and get him on our side. So it says in the scriptures that, they, that he got a group of people together and they raised up the money for the divination. In other words, they put a nice chunk of change together to go offer him. And these, this delegate of people from Moab went to Balaam and said, Hey, Balaam, the king, King Balak wants to bring you in. We're going to pay you this money. And we want you to curse these people who are coming up against the Moabites. Well, around that time, Balaam said, hey, that's a pretty good deal. But you know what? Give me one night to think about it. And during the night, God spoke to Balaam and said, don't go with these guys. Okay. This is the voice of the Lord is what he kept referring to him. Voice of the Lord told me not to go. So he comes to him the next day and says, guys, I'm not going to go with you. And they said, well, we, did we not bring enough money? And Balaam's exact response was like, guys, you could have brought all the silver in the world and it still couldn't, wouldn't be enough to get me to go with you because the Lord has told me not to go with you. So he believed God, but he didn't believe in God. So they went back to King Balak and said, Balak, he's not coming. Uh, for some reason, I don't know what. So Balak said, all right, let's get more important people and let's get a greater pot of gold and let's send you back to them. So they went back to Balaam and said, hey, we're back. Balak wants to know why you didn't come, but we brought more money and we really want you to come. And he was like, "Mm, more money. Let me think about it. Give me a night. We'll talk. So that night, God spoke to him again and he said, here's what I want you to do, Balaam. I want you to go with these men But I want every word you speak to be my words that I give you. So he gave him two commands. Go with them, but everything you speak has to be what I tell you to speak. So I can imagine Balaam was pretty excited about this. So the next morning he's like, hey guys, I'm in. Well, how much money did you got? Anyway, let's go. Let's make this happen. So kind of pick up where we are in Numbers chapter 22. Let's, uh, let's begin in verse 21. I know the verse 22 is up there, so leave it up there. But it's just kind of a Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. Now, verse 22. But God was very angry when he went. Why was God angry? I mean, God is the one that told him to go, right? But see, God gave him two orders. Go with these men, but only speak what I'm going to speak through you. So we see him being obedient to the first order, right? He's going with these men, but yet God is angry with him. So if y'all want to kind of put two and two together, do the math, God is angry with him because when he was loading up his saddlebags and getting on his donkey, there was something in his heart that God said, you're not going for the, you're about to be disobedient. It says God was angry with him because see, God knows the hearts of man and he still does. He still does. So, but God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat the donkey to get it back on the road. 
Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Hold on to this, church. <laughs> then, the, then the Lord... All caps, Yahweh. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam. You did not read that in properly. Yes, the donkey said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Y'all know scripture is pretty remarkable, right? Like if you read the word of God, you're like, this is amazing. There might not be anything quite as amazing separate than the blood of Jesus spilt for us on the cross than what you're about to see here in this text. And I'm not even talking about the fact that the donkey spoke to Balaam. The donkey said, what have I done to you to make you beat me three times? Balaam answered the donkey. (laughs) You've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Let's stop right here, church. How many of you have an animal at your house? Just raise your hand real high. You have a pet that you may or may not enjoy? Okay. How many of you have ever had a pet in your house or near your house? How many of you ever had a close association with an animal? That's just everybody. Got it. Has that animal ever spoken to you in your native tongue? I'm so glad no hands went up. If, you know, by chance... If you got home today and your pet greeted you in your favorite seat in the house and you shooed it out of the way and it looked at you and said, why must you shoo me from this comfortable location which you choose for yourself every day? Would your response be, A, because it is the most comfortable seat in the house and I am more important than you and you should move? Or would your response be, B, honey, this thing just spoke to me. I know, dear. We're going to get you your medicine soon. Like, what would your option, what would you be? Would you go with A or B? B, right? I would hope you would go with B. There is a donkey that just talked to me. My name is Balaam. And instead of think, his logical response was, well, I beat you because you weren't doing what I was saying to Smarty pants. Does anybody else see the remarkable, absurd, outrageous nature of what we just read? I'm just making sure you're paying attention because a donkey just spoke and Balaam answered it. If I would have had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. No, you wouldn't. You'd go start a sideshow with a Tonkin donkey. You're a spiritist. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? His response would be like, "Uh, no, this is not habitual for you to have a conversation with me. But he does say, no, he said. That's what the Bible says. Am I in the habit of doing this? Am I in the habit of treating you this way? I've been your donkey for a number of years. Have I always done this to you? No, 
you're talking now. That's new. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. A reckless one. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. But I would have spared the donkey. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you're displeased, I'll go back. I'll go back to where I came from. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I'm here now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. So we see that God told him to do two things. Go, but only speak what I put in your mouth. So he goes and he opposed him because we can kind of see, you can kind of get just got a feel for this guy. I think as he's riding down the road thinking like, man, I'm fixing to go and do my thing. I'm going to do my spirit calling in front of a king. Man, can you imagine what this is going to do for my resume, my online presence? When they see that I'm one of the psychic advisors to the king, how much more money, not just the money he's going to pay me, but how much money this is going to get. This is going to be awesome. And that's when God sent an angel to oppose him because he wasn't being obedient he believed God but he didn't believe in God so much of the fact that when God opened his eyes and he saw an angel of the Lord there to kill him with his sword drawn he fell to his face and he was like I've sinned I'm sorry okay I get it I will only speak what you put in my mouth that's kind of what we see here so obviously We see him still wanting his craving, his heart's desire, which is to make money. You see in his response when Balak was like, it's about time you got here. He's like, yeah, I finally made it, but I can only tell what God's going to tell me to tell. The Lord is only going to be able to say that. So I want you to hang on to that. That God's message was clear to Balaam, even though Balaam wasn't a true follower of God. Or even a believer in who God was. We're in the middle of a, of a series in which we're studying the Word of God. Last week we talked about the authority of the Word of God. The written Word of God and its authority in our lives. Uh, we unpacked that last week. This week we're talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. And a lot of people think, well, authority of Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture, isn't that kind of the same thing? They definitely play, against, play off each other, but they're not the same thing. Because if we understand the authority of God's word, and then we understand the inerrancy of God's word, it gives us two separate confidences in how we live out our faith. Uh, Do y'all see what I'm saying? So this morning we're going to unpack the inerrancy of God's word. And inerrancy is simply free from error. It means that the the, the Bible has no errors in it. In in our Christian faith, um, we believe in the totality of God's authoritative word in the sense that everything that we have in God's word is truth. It's God-breathed, it's God's 
God-breathed word that he put in the hearts and minds of human mans, that he used human hands to write it out, but it's his words that he has given to us. When we, see, when we recognize the authority of God's word, we submit to it and build our lives around it, right? That's what authority is. But inerrancy is basically saying the fact that Scripture has zero errors in it. There are no faults or flaws in God's Word. And people have been debating this for like decades. I mean, hundreds of years, people have been saying that there are flaws and errors in God's Word. There's a lot of arguments against the inerrancy of Scripture. There's a lot of rebuttals for the inerrancy of Scripture. And we're not going to try to unpack all of those today. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to focus on one question in dealing with the inerrancy The fact that there is no errors in God's word, the inerrancy of scripture, the one thing we're going to focus on is this. If the Bible has errors in it, what does that say of God and his character? So as we unpack the inerrancy of God's word, we're going to answer the question, if the Bible has errors in it, what does that say about God and his character? And the kicker is, we're going to use Balaam to help us answer that question. But before we get there, I want to remind you what I talked about last week. I believe in the total authority of God's word. I believe that what it says, every word to the cross T and the dotted I, is how God intended it and what he gave us. I believe it is completely uh, God-breathed, and that means that it was God's exact words given to us through human authors. I believe that. So in answering the question of inerrancy of Scripture, I'm going to use Scripture to prove it, because Scripture in itself has authority to answer this question. Are you all with me so far? Like four of you are. What about the rest of you? Except for the ones that are asleep. I get it. You're not going to answer. Are you with me? Then let's keep going. I want us to talk about Kevin Hamrick lying. I, I, I'm not calling Kevin Hamrick a liar. I just realized how bad that sounds. Kevin, where are you at? <laughs> Kevin, I'm not calling you a liar. Kevin and I were talking about this outside before church because he was talking about being a fisherman. I'm not calling Kevin a liar. I am calling Kevin a fisherman. Do the math. But we were talking about the fact that we're going to be talking about lying today and we got a good kick out of it. I just realized when I said that out loud, I'm like, oh, that sounded bad. Kevin, I don't think you're a liar. I think you're a pretty good dude. I know you're covered by the blood of Jesus, so I'm thankful for that. You're my brother. And we're from Mississippi, so you know we're more right than anybody in the room. So that's okay. (laughs) I'll appreciate your humor in that. We're going to talk about lying. How many of you believe lying is a sin? I'm so glad that the majority of the room has your hands up. This This is a good thing. How many of you believe that God's word speaks against lying? Wonderful. You know, in our United States court systems, in our own judicial system, lying is looked at negatively. You walk in a courtroom and you tell a lie, guess what? You're going to pay the price for that. You're going to be in trouble for that. You're going to pay consequences of that. Lying is a sin. And God shows us over and over in his word. I'm going to share with you some passages of scripture that that supports this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. One of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't tell lies about people. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. Proverbs 16, verses 6 through 9, and some of y'all are in small groups last year, you remember some of these passages. It says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. We say that word again, an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, 
and one who sows discord among brethren. So of the seven things that are an abomination to God, two of them involve lying. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I think God's word is very clear on his stance on lying and how he views lying. And get the idea here, God's not a fan of it. So what's the opposite of telling lies? Truth, absolutely. So let's look at what God's word says about God and truth. Psalm 33, 4, for the Lord is right and all his works are done in truth. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to God and he says this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 say, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Psalm 12, 6, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Psalms 119, these guys up here did a great job leading us in worship by the reading of the first part of Psalms 119. Psalms 119.89 says, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Okay, Justin, we get it. God doesn't like lying. God likes truth. We get it. All right, I'm glad. I want you to hang with me because we're trying to establish something here. I want you to see what else this means. Let's keep reading. In Titus 1.2. Titus 1-2 says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. 2 Samuel 7-28, sovereign Lord, you are God, your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Hebrews 6-18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to tell a lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, what do we establish? We establish three things in that group of passages of Scripture we just read. So, according to God, creator of the world, ruler of the universe, author of all things, you'll get it, God. According to God, lying is bad. It's actually something that he rather detests. It's called an abomination. Lying is not good. Also, according to God, God, the Lord, is truth. He is right. He is truth. And third, God does not lie. He is completely trustworthy. His word is completely trustworthy. It is impossible for God to lie. Lying is bad. God is truth. God does not tell a lie. Now listen. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Some of your translations might say, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. I want you to hang with me. That if the Bible is 100% God-breathed, that it is the word of God coming from God through human hands and minds and hearts, From start to finish, if this true living word contains errors, doesn't that make God a liar? Doesn't that make God wrong? And if God is wrong, and if God is a liar, 
And Ephesians 1 says for us to follow God's example or be imitators of God, wouldn't that be God commanding us to be liars if we are to imitate him? Therefore, God in his own word would be commanding to us to become the abomination to him? Do y'all see the connection here? We just established that lying is bad. God's word speaks against it. We established that God is truth and his word is flawless. And then we also established that God's word, God is not a liar. So if there are errors, if there are flaws contained in this text that supposedly is God-breathed, it is God-breathed from his own lips, then if it's full of errors, wouldn't that make God a liar? Do you see how this argument for the inerrancy of Scripture holds zero weight? Because what kind of a God would we serve who lies to his people and commands us to be liars so that we would be an abomination to him? That stands in direct opposite of the love offered through Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Therefore, we would proceed to deduce that God's word declared that God wanted to crucify and torture his son out of anger towards us. This is not biblical truth, church. It's not. The Bible as we know it has been around for over 1,900 years. And when I say as we know it, I'm talking about the complete text that we have as God's word has been around for over 1,900 years. And plenty of people have tried to prove that it's full of errors, that it contains errors. So let's listen to one of these guys. Let's listen to one of these guys that that would benefit greatly from God's word containing errors. Let's hear from somebody who would profit greatly by proving God's word was full of errors. Let's listen, let's hear from somebody who would want nothing more than to prove God as a liar, to prove God as untruth, to prove God as false, to prove God wasn't worth the weight of salt that his words carried. Let's hear from somebody who, believe, who wants everything in their life to believe, who stands to gain everything if they can just prove that God's word is flawed. Let's hear from Balaam. So you're in Numbers 22. I invite you to turn over one chapter to chapter 23 of Numbers. When he arrives to Balak and they start getting down to business, Balaam speaks first to Balak. And he basically says, early in chapter 23, he basically says, hey, here's the thing. You brought me up from where I am to curse these people. But look at that in verse 8. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? And he even dropped down at the end of verse 10. And he says, and may my final end be like theirs. So the first word that he presents to Balak, the one who's fixing to make this guy a rich man, if he would only tell him what he wants to hear, he doesn't. He can't. He says, how can I curse these people who have already been blessed? How can I denounce these people who refuse to be denounced because of who their God is? I hope that my end is as righteous as their end. Keep reading. In his second message, when Balak said to him, come back, I want you to just try this again. I want you to prophesy. I want you to give me a, a word. I want you to, to curse these people. I want you to drop down to verses 19 and 20. This is what he says. He says, God is not human 
that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He is blessed. And I cannot change it. Here is a guy. Here is a guy whose life would totally change. The trajectory of his life would totally take an uptick. If he could just verbally say, you know what? God's wrong. He hasn't blessed these people. That's false because we know God's a liar. So I'm going to curse them in your name and you go defeat these people. He could even, maybe even just be like, hey, you know, I know that's impossible for me to do, but I'm just going to at least tell this king this so I can get paid and get out of here. No. The man that would benefit greatly if he could only prove that God was full of errors and flaws and was not right and true and just. The only man who wants God to be wrong physically cannot even speak that God has any error in him. And he says, there is nothing more than I'd love to do is to curse these people. But because of who the Lord God is and how he has declared over these people his blessing, I got nothing but blessing for him. Balaam, the one who believed God but didn't believe in God. Why? Why wouldn't God change his mind? Why wouldn't God tell a lie? You know why? Because he's God. There is no error or flaw in God. And even though Balaam didn't believe God, he still could not even refute God's word. This is a guy that wanted to refute God's word, and he couldn't because of the power of God. Poor Balaam. You know, he never changed his position. If you keep reading about the story of Balaam, and it's it's kind of throughout Scripture. Actually, Balaam is referenced over ten times in other places in Scripture, several times in the New Testament. This dude was a pretty big deal, and we're going to talk about him one day. We're just going to unpack the character of Balaam. But if you follow his story, you will see that after he got done with his business with King Balak, that he settled right there in Moab. He settled in Moab. The very city that he acknowledged, hey, you know what, you guys are the next one in the path of God and his righteousness. Mm, You're not going to make it uh, because there's nobody that can stop God. But you know what, I'm just going to settle here and be amongst you. Because he believed God, but he didn't believe in God. And when the Israelite army came through and Moab too fell, we see about Balaam's end and his reputation summed up in one verse in Joshua 13, 22. It says this. Let me just paint you a picture of what's taking place in Joshua 13. Moses is distributing the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's actually a really, really boring chapter. Because it's like, to the tribe of this, Moses gave this city and this city and this city. To the tribe of this, Moses declared this river is the boundary and this river is the boundary. To the tribe of this, Moses gave this, this, and this. And then in Joshua 13, verse 22, in the middle of this is who gets what, this is who gets what, we see this. In addition to those slain in battle, the Israelites had put to the sword Balaam, son of Baor, who practiced divination. Now to the tribe of so-and-so and so-and-so, Moses gives this, this, and this. Like literally the Bible is saying like, okay, this tribe got this, this tribe got this. Y'all remember Balaam? He did. This tribe you get this, this tribe you get this. Even in his first steps, he said, man, I hope my end is as righteous as theirs. He didn't get that because he never believed in God. What does this mean? What does this mean? 
Does this mean Balaam was kind of a moron? Yeah, he's kind of a moron. But that's not what we're getting at today. If you don't believe me, ask his donkey. He just didn't get it. But what does this mean for us? It means this. The inerrancy of Scripture proves that God does not make a mistake. And some of you, man, some of you this morning, when you get home, when you get in your car, when you get alone, maybe that's what you need to do. You need to go home and you need to get a hand mirror. You need to get your phone camera to turn so you can see yourself. And I want you to look yourself in the mirror and remind yourself, say it out loud, God does not make a mistake. And every single one of us that applies to us. Doesn't matter what your life looks like. Doesn't matter what, what you burdens you bear or what weight of the world that you carry. God does not make a mistake. We do. But because we still draw breath, God's not done with us and he has a desire for us to come to him. Because God does not make a mistake. He's never wrong. His word is never wrong. It is inerrant. It is absolute. There is nothing in it that is incorrect. Because his word tells us that every single one of us, while we might have a different occupation, we're a lot like Balaam. We're deceitful, we're selfish, we're greedy, we're stubborn, we're all about ourselves. God's word says there's not much difference between him and us. God's word also is not wrong when it says that apart from God's grace, our sin has condemned us. Our sin has condemned us to a second death separated from God for all eternity in hell. That's what God's word reminds us about. But you know what else God's word tells us? That I know it's true, it's not inerrant. I mean, it's not errant, it is inerrant, it is no flaws, it's not wrong. God's word says this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. This is what we read in God's authoritative, inerrant word. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Trust me, God doesn't lie. When he says you will never be put to shame for those who believe in him, he doesn't lie. He'll never lie. Especially when it comes to those he loves. Have you ever loved him back? Have you ever had the capacity and desire to love God the way he created us to love him? He's not wrong. You'll see it when you do. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we recognize its authority, but God, we also recognize of an, its inerrancy. And there's nothing in your word that is flawed or wrong because there's nothing in you that is flawed or wrong. That we have this passage of scripture of Balaam. God, we, we, we looked at the most absurd patches, passage of text when you think about a donkey speaking. The God, the one who, who didn't believe in you, he believed what you said, but he didn't believe it in you and really didn't believe what you said, God, because he, it cost him his life. Even he couldn't say that you were wrong. Father, maybe we're not walking around 
professing or confessing with our mouths that you're wrong or your word is wrong, but we certainly are living it. God, we believe in the flaws in your word because we're not trusting you. We're not living out your promises. We don't really, we're not clinging to it, God. So God, open our eyes this morning and show us that we're wrong and that your word is truth. Your word has no flaws. And God, you stand by your word. And God, it's the same word that calls to us. It's your same word that reveals to us your plan of salvation for us, that our our lives are not meant to live separately from you or to trust ourselves to be Lord of our own situations. God, we surrender and submit to your total lordship. And God, there's somebody in this room that may have never done that before. But the same person is also understanding that the weight of their words hasn't taken them as far as they would like. God, I pray this morning that you would reveal to them the truth of your word that says all who sin, there's a chance, there's a hope of grace and mercy for those who come to Jesus. And God, today may those who need Christ come to Jesus. And God, if, if that means they, they come down here, if I can talk with them through that, if we can have that conversation, God, give them the confidence to do so, that we could do that together. But God, may they not leave this place before they talk to somebody about the truth of the salvation found in Jesus Christ as shown to us through your word. God, for the husbands and the wives, the fathers and the mothers that are trying to to love each other and to raise children based on their own words. God, then they're exhausted. God, reveal to them the end of themselves and show them the value and the inerrancy of your word to stand on and lean on to raise their families. God, for the believer who's just struggling with their own issues, God, help them to take their eyes off of their issues and put them on you. And God, use your word to heal and restore them. God, whatever it is, you meet us where we are every single day. So God, for the first time today, or maybe for the first time ever, may we as your church open our lives to you and say, God, I'm ready for your absolute authoritative, inerrant word to take root in my life, to be lived out in what I do. God, may we commit to follow you based on your word. And may that begin this morning. God, whatever you call us to do, may we respond and submit to you in total obedience. God, even now as we stand and worship, may we lift your name high and fix and go after you and trust you to fix whatever it is in us that you need to accomplish for your name to be greater than our own. In your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing. Stories of one thing. Think you're.